when you're in medical training, listening to your internal truth, your, yourself, like, what do I need to do right now? I need to go pee. You're not allowed to go pee right now because you're on call. So there's a process whereby you're kind of programmed robotically to continue working despite listening to whatever your inner voice is telling you. And I use the example of having to pee deliberately because that seems like a pretty natural signal from your bladder that I have to go. But what, what then, what about not listening to the signal to have to pee? Let's compare that to not listening, being trained to not listen to the signal that perhaps this thing I'm doing is hurting somebody, yeah. disrupting their labor process, um, intervening when it's not necessary. You're trained over four hard years of residency. Don't listen to that. Don't, don't fall you know, through cognitive dissonance. We need you to get through that because this is how we do things here. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife Rx. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Well, good to see you, my friend. It's been uh, quite a number of years when we have been uh, doing this digital thing. Someday, we're going to be face-to-face. Well, November, (laughs) That's it. That's exactly it. Thank you so much for agreeing to come speak at the Midwifery Wisdom Experience. Those of you who don't know, don't have tickets yet, go pop over to midwiferywisdom.com. Check out the experience. We have a three-day conference, like is typical for uh, professionals, but we've added some extras, um, like uh, the skills and drills, like NRP and CPR certification, Mm -hmm. Um, 20 different stations to practice hands-on skills. We have a lot of amazing vendors coming and a retreat and all kinds of things. Go check it out. Nathan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Sorry. Got a, a neighbor's about to start cutting the grass. So I got all the windows closed now. It's my pleasure, Augustine. It's really good to see you. Thanks for organizing. It's really it. good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start. For those that don't know you, uh, will you give us a little intro about who you are, where you are, and how you got started in caring about midwifery? Yeah, I mean, the, the story is, uh, has changed over the years because I think initially I was sort of cynical and spiteful of the industrial medical complex, you know, very, very early on in my medical training, which was at Temple and then at Kaiser in LA and then UC San Diego for my hospice and palliative care fellowship. I started, you know, really understanding that the, the way that the way that people come into medicine is, is really based on very strict parameters, right? You, you answer the right question on the test 
And if you answer more questions than the other person, you get, you get promoted to the next level and then the next level and the next level so that when you get to the very top tier ranks, physician, nurse practitioner, whatever that is for, for many people, that could be that you're a veteran nurse in the system. You've been rewarded for that, for your work by staying in the lines and following the rules. And um, for me, that wasn't really all that helpful when I was caring for people through sacred rites of passage, whether it be birth or death, because you have sometimes have to get creative um, based on understanding a person's values and needs, whether it's a birthing woman or it's a birthing person or it's a, um, a man or woman at the very end of their life. And yeah. uh, in other words, you can't protocolize these two experiences and there's a lot of immeasurable facets. So I had to start getting creative and that wasn't really serving me in the system. So I stepped out and I started my own thing and haven't looked back. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So where in the world are you, first of all? Yeah, so you and I met when uh, we were when I was still in California. I was there for five yeah. years of my postgrad training. That's the residency. It's four hard years yeah. of residency. Went through my own experiences of adrenal fatigue and not sleeping and doing all that stuff. And then um, I was at Scripps Encinitas in California, and then I got recruited out here to do palliative care. And I'm currently in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm very happy here. It's uh, it's a very different environment from California. Mm -hmm. That, but I also do. And what brought you to Louisville? And, and it's Louisville, right? <laughs> Did I say right? Louisville. Yeah, yeah. Even my wife, there's a there's a surefire way to say it if you're from the Midwest or if you're from Louisville itself. Louisville. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Louisville. Uh, Swallow Louisville. your words. You got it. Because, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put a handful of marbles in your mouth and channel Kurt Cobain and just not enunciate it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I got yeah. recruited for left that system about six months in realizing like this this definitely isn't for me to be a part of the big system yeah. and you mentioned yeah. that the midwifery model of care is is kind of the way forward and i agree with that like uh spending 90 minutes when you first meet them helps you understand who they are and what's really important to them and only then can we serve people whether it's beginning or end of life or it's anywhere in between so um i left that worked for hospice for a little bit and then i i <laughs> I, we separated, would we'll I say, and um, and now I'm doing my my own thing, and it's it's been a, a really beautiful roller coaster. That's so fun. Well, many of us who are on the fringe, on the marginalized edge of healthcare, end up being entrepreneurs as well, and right. that's its own level of challenge and excitement. Um, are, are you are you loving it? Are you hating it? Where where are you with running your own business? Well, initially, when I first totally stepped out of the system, I thought, oh, I will be a home birth doc. You know, Stu Fishbein, you know, was a big mentor of mine, and he was doing that for years. And even when I was in California, there was the consideration, maybe we'll join forces. Maybe Nick Kapitanakis and I will join forces. Um, but uh, then I realized, well, there's so many midwives in the state of Kentucky and the surrounding states that are doing great work. What if I just took a step back and put all of my effort into supporting their practices? Mm -hmm. So that's actually the, been the most rewarding part, which is the collaborator program that I talk so much about. Um, and if I didn't have that, I probably wouldn't be as happy because it really is rewarding to just be able to like read the journals, continue to revise the guide, you know, re review the guidelines, and then to be able to provide that support to people who are also spending hours on hours with, you know, um, birthing people that, that really, really need this care. Yeah, I love that. And it, I wanted to say it takes so much humility and so much personal growth to come to a place where you can see 
where you would be most useful, most effective, where you would, in, a, in essence, borrow from midwifery, sit on your hands some, like, I, I you know, like that, that's a midwifery <laughs> skill. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of, of uh, courage to step out of the channel in which you were forged and do something really different. So I really want to commend you for that. And then obviously, not just stepping out, not just, you know, educating yourself, but now providing this tremendous resource for the midwifery community um, in, in, firm, in terms of like speaking at conferences and getting invested in education, but also this, this mentorship, this collaborative uh, backup kind of system you've developed. For those that don't know, will you tell us a little bit about how it works? What, what's happening there? And is it just for your local community? Or is it for everyone? For everybody, I've got people from, I've actually got a couple people internationally as well who I'm supporting. Mm -hmm. Basically what, what I do is for a reasonable monthly fee, I just provide people my phone number and my email. And if there's any question that comes up, whether it's related to labs, imaging, medications that need refilled, or some, some midwives based on their state regulation, regulatory bodies, they actually need to have a collaborative physician like me in order to <clears throat> oversee their care. But they're their, their practice is still separate from my own and their care for their patients is still separate. They just need to have a doc that is co-signing orders or um, sometimes they can't even order certain medications, whether it's from Precious Arrows or any of these private pharmacies, they can't even yeah. order it unless my NPI number in order to yeah. back prescriptions. So, so there's a, a whole bunch of different reasons why people join, but really the, the, for me, the best part is that, hey, doc, I've got this patient, she's got these findings. What do you make of that? And I can be like, you know what? I appreciate you, you seeing that. I don't think it's something to worry about, but so let's just follow up in a couple of weeks with her. Or, you know, this might be a person that actually needs to go and see a high-risk doc in person to do a, a full detailed scan of the baby's, you know, of the placenta. Whatever, or yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Good I stuff. love that. And it's, it's, I think it's like, it, it must feel like you in some ways to be like so duh. <laughs> Yeah. we should have this integrated care right yeah yeah well i mean yeah. you know, why don't we have more of this yeah you know augustine of course you're in you're in india but for many many people in the united states when you come right out of midwifery school um or if you even if you've been doing it for 20 years you see that thing that you don't know what it means but your client is dedicated to having a home birth but the reality is you send them in to see a doctor especially a high-risk doc they, all they have to do is add a little bit of language to cover themselves, but that actually risks them out of midwifery care at home um, just because of some language in the license that says, hey, a person with whatever, IUGR, fetal growth restriction, or um, suspected gestational hypertension or whatever, that might actually disqualify them from home birth. And so now what do you do? So I'm very, very careful in how, what language I use and the discernment, the nuance is this true hypertension or is this something related to something else? You know, she was really excited that day or whatever else, but. White coat uh, syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. And it, it, it really shines a light on the bias that most midwives in community setting experience when they look for that second opinion, that higher level of care, that collaborative communication. Like there's so much bias that these physicians are busy protecting their own 
hide. And they say things, they chart things that really um, make it impossible to make a different decision than what they're recommending. And, And it's truly biased. It's biased care. It really has nothing to do with that one person's situation. That's right. Um, it's just it's just perpetuating the idea in our culture that all babies should be born in an institution, right? right. So I love that you have broken some of this down um, for a reasonable fee. They sign up, they can get access to consulting with you, but this isn't twenty four hours, right? It isn't like two a.m. consults at a birth, is it? Yeah. Hey, we've got a breach. The head seems stuck. What do I do? That's not really the the purpose of it. Um, I do yeah. also, wise in that way. I charge a very reasonable fee to even attend as a backup doc in the home as well, driving distance. Um, and that's a separate conversation with my, the people that are in my operator program. Right, right, gotcha. Well, what a tremendous resource. I, I really love that. I know that you're providing a lot of value to not only the midwives, but also the families uh, that you're, you're backing up. Well, so you've been doing lots of things in, in your very short career, honestly, in, in the scheme of how long you could be a doc. You've been like just, you know, beginning and you just exploded in what you're doing. You've run um, several podcasts now. Tell us about the one you're producing right now that you're loving. I'm loving it too, by the way. I just listened to one of your solo casts. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Um, the current podcast which I hope stays the way it is for a long time, is called the Holistic OBGYN Podcast, where I really kind of take a truly holistic approach, not just natural remedies, but looking at the whole person, body, soul, spirit, and helping guide them through whatever it is. It doesn't, it doesn't just birth, but it's also, you know, it could be something related to depression, anxiety, endometriosis, whatever. And there's all these really great people out in the world that are working with women in different ways. And I wanted to try to bring them all into one place. Um, and then awesome. I highlight the, the podcast with a few episodes where I actually talk about the specifics of my practice and what I would do, let's say, to approach endometriosis or fibroids or whatever else. And ha- it's really a matter of highlighting the people that I refer people out to, you know, like mm-hmm. Adrienne Irizarry, she's a pelvic steam specialist. And she's done so much, has, has provided so much um, support to me, because I know that instead of this person paying me for many hours of my time, which can be very expensive, why don't you spend $100 and go see my, my, peri, my peristeme hydrotherapist, and she's going to do a, probably a better job than I can, even, even with everything that I, I bring to the table. So um, that project's great. The old podcast was called Beloved Holistics Radio, which was rebranded from Obigaino Wino, and the reason I changed it right. all together was because if I'm going to stay, be on the stand, which I have been supporting Hermine Hayes-Klein and some of her clients, if I'm going to be up on the stand and they're like, the ob gyno wino, it, it doesn't necessarily sound all that great. So Hermine <laughs> kind of... <laughs> That's great. I love that. Yeah, branding is important. I, this is, now, this is my area of expertise, right? Is totally. We help midwives uh, create brands that don't uh, create conflict or controversy. So I love that. Hermine is, is one of those sharpshooters when it comes to what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. So that's, that's fantastic. It was also the push to get board certified because I wasn't going to do the yeah. fellow dog thing. Um, she was like, Nathan, just go and do it. You know you can do it. Just pretend. Just play the game for six more months. And it was like six yeah. months, 12 hours a day of studying. And then you sit for the test, you pass it, and then you look behind. But she was the one that made me do that because uh, that, that convinced yeah. me because it well, it's, it's the same thing that midwives face too is this, this like credentialing like we we live and work in this 
you know, very pyramid shaped experience where if you don't have the gatekeeping steps, you know, you don't, you don't sound as credentialed that you don't sound as, as, um, you know, authoritarian. And that's unfortunately the culture we live in. So thank you, I think, for those of us who need you to testify as a subject matter expert for being that subject matter expert now and, and getting that. That's, that's tremendous. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Well, so you're, you're doing so many things, podcasting and consulting, and obviously, um, you know, working on some pretty high level cases because midwifery is under threat uh, nationally. Um, and all of this is in response to what you've described on many of your podcasts. And, and obviously, we all are talking about the problem with the medical industrial complex and how it does not actually involve healthcare at all. Um, and, and the intersection of where the medical industrial complex and midwives come together is, I think, the really uh, painful, juicy, important, scary place that I spend a lot of time talking about. And it's where you are now working. That's your, this intersection is where you now live and play. And, and I just, I guess I'd love it if you would take us through your vision for how we can shift as a culture nationwide. Um, how are we moving the needle towards this truly integrative care model, which we all know needs to happen. It's what exists in many parts of the world where this is midwifery is integrated and then we have better and safer outcomes and we have people sure. over profit and all these important things. So what's your vision? How are we moving in that direction? Yeah, I really think that uh, if we can learn anything from the past couple of years, there was a lot of hardship over the, this pandemic. And, um, but there was also some, some, some little nuggets that I that we that we've you and I have actually chatted about that actually were very revelatory for uh, in support of the midwifery care model, and a, a couple of those have been: Is it necessary that you're going into the clinic with all of the stuff you've got going during the day, spending ninety minutes, two hours waiting for your doctor, going to be seen just to have your urine dipstick done? Somebody measures your belly. They maybe talk to you about don't play with cat litter, and then you go home. Like that's the <laughs> <laughs> so perfect that's it don't forget the paper gowns yeah mm -hmm. yeah and the paper gowns and all the discomfort that comes with that what we learned with the pandemic was hey we can't have people in the clinic because we're afraid about this virus spreading so stay home we'll do a telehealth visit and we'll take care of things like that well it turns out we didn't have a whole bunch of people's heads exploding over the past three years in the pregnancy world if anything more women actually felt more safe in their and i'm using the word safe but they they felt more secure in their decision to have a home birth and seek the care of a midwife because they could stay home and have the team come to them. So while we are trying to hold up this midwifery care model, I personally would like to see that become the default in the United States where everybody is getting a midwife. And if they need an OB, then boom, then, then we've got these you know, trained surgeons in the hospital that can do the magic of OBGYNs. I also have changed my cynicism a little bit, whereby I used to feel like, why can't the doctors see it this way? Yeah. And then when you realize that they've been rewarded again, like I was saying in the beginning, for staying between the lines their entire life, they like protocols, they like procedures, so do nurses who are working in the hospital. We can't hold the flame to them to change because they are, there's a reason that they're staying in the system. It serves them in that way that they don't feel they have to be totally responsible for every little thing that happens. They have a, a, 
uh, they have colleagues, they've got their culture of their practice, they've got hospital policies and procedures, and they've got the state and the federal government telling them what happens in hospitals. That's okay for them. We don't need to burn the system down, Augustine. What we need to do is support one another in building a life raft while we slowly turn the needle in favor of home birth with the care of a midwife over the default currently in the United States where 99% of babies are being born in the hospital just because women feel compelled to do it. That, that's not a real decision. That's the way yeah. Well, I think it's finally about 97%, not 99%, but yes, I agree with you. Like, we, we have to move more towards uh, that, that, that special uh, place where um, the, the natural process, the normal process is the default choice, and then high risk gets referred out. And this is the model in Sweden, and this is the model in the Netherlands, and this is the model in New Zealand. And, there are places in the world where this is already existing. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to implement it. Right. So you're doing a major part of this implementation. Yeah. Um, we need more doctors like you. We need more midwives. We know that we're in a healthcare desert uh, across the United States. 50% of the counties in the United States have no obstetrical services, not midwives or OBs. That's a crisis. We're in crisis level in terms of physicians. We aren't churning enough physicians out, right? So there's right. all these systemic issues. How, how are we going to shift this? I mean, midwives are doing what they're doing. They're in the trenches, working day and night, on call, 3 a.m., doing the birth, safe care, all those things. You're providing this sphere of support for the folks that connect with you. But who else can we pull in? How can we, I mean, like, one of the things I've loved is the public health folks. The public health folks are sold on midwifery 100%. So how do we get them involved in helping to shift the policy of how the doctors even work or where they can work? Or Tell me your ideas. What do you think about all this? <clears throat> I think one big problem that, uh, so I don't have an answer for you, but I do yeah. see- we, we, None of it. I mean, we're all spitballing, right? So yeah, no pressure. Yeah. I, I think it would be really, really great if we didn't have as much publication bias in order to support that, where if, if you flip through the Green Journal, I got the, the most recent copy right behind me. I was flipping through it before we started. The vast majority of studies that are being published in major medical journals, especially in the OBGYN community, are really serving to establish some uh, clarity around the internal bias of the system, right? We have a study now that shows that doing this thing in birth actually wasn't a problem after all, like the ARRIVE trial. These yeah. landmark studies are really shifting things in a way that is very, very hard to come back from. Yeah, so, and they're seeing this in UK. I don't know if you're following the UK drama, but no. the entire NIH has changed the way that they, their protocols for how to take care of women. Now, basically it's a policy that all women get induced in 39 weeks from the public health service. Yeah. And the crisis that is happening, not only for midwives, but especially for the moms and the families. And, you know, actually the ARRIVE study was not correct. Tell us more. Keep going. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, so, so number one, we, are, we have a, a, a selection bias based on the criteria of what we want to see in journals. And a lot of doctors to say, hey, 40 years ago, uh, we started doing this thing. And now there's a study that says I shouldn't do that thing anymore. That's very confronting. That's if there's a pain yeah. point means, oh, maybe I've been hurting people for 40 years. Yeah. It's a lot to ask of any human being, they're all humans, to look back and say, oh no, I was wrong for 40 years. 
and the journals aren't helping with that, you know? So what we need is a really truly, uh, um, I don't want to say altruistic, but we need to be very open-minded as to what is the purpose of science. It's the exploration of truth. And we need to be willing to admit that, hey, that thing we've been doing for 40 years or whatever, maybe it wasn't wrong. Let's take a step back. There's no harm, no foul. Let's pivot now. And let's start doing things a little bit better if there's a study that's done, it's well done, it's got great methods that demonstrates that even that thing that you were afraid to let go of actually isn't helpful. Let's just be willing to have a little humility as doctors and as the system at large to pivot and change the direction. Because if, if we mean it when we say we care about women or birthing people or people in general at large, then we need to be willing to sit with our failures and our mistakes and the system doesn't reward you for saying, I don't know, or I made a mistake. And we yeah. just need, we need to uphold the space for people to make mistakes and to be wrong. And then to say, it's okay that we're wrong. Let's move together shoulder to shoulder in this direction now. I just don't see that happening a lot, but. Yeah, well, and I, I would just expand out the view and really think about um, the, the, the whole thing we've just been through, right? So being right. able to look at the policy that got established during the pandemic and be like, oh, actually, now that we have more data, that didn't really work. That's right. been a sticking point these last two years. And, you know, I, there's something really weird happening in the United States. And it's this, like, believe in science. And it's like, wait a second. Science is not a religion. Like, not stop a with this. <laughs> it's not a belief system. Exactly. So you know, how this got started, I really don't understand, but its effect is that it is, it is causing exactly what you're describing and on the macro scale, but also individually in, in the birth room. And then like I started out talking about you, it takes a lot, a lot of humility to look at the way that you were trained or the way that you did things and say, I might've been wrong. I didn't have all the answers. Yeah. 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 There, there, and there. Ego, right? We have to <laughs> heal that, that ego wound that's trying to express itself with all the, the mainstream folks. Well, so how did you do that? Tell us, how did you break through that? Well, I mean, as you can probably guess from a very early age, I was always kind of questioning things, you know? It's mm -hmm. sort of like, I mean, religion was actually the first thing for me. It was like, if God is benevolent, then how could these bad things happen? I mean, it sounds like mm -hmm. so cliche, but as a little kid, I was asking that to my mom and I was yeah. like, should I? you know, I mean, whatever. And I, I grew up in a household that I would say is a religious at best, you know, maybe uh -huh. perhaps, but uh -huh. atheistic I was into like Richard Dawkins and like Christopher Hitchens. And so it took me a t some time for me to start having my own personal experiences to change my mind around that and become very deeply spiritual. But if you were to, t you know, to consider a person who, who doesn't really like to go along with just being told what to do, it took me a, it was really hard for me to get through school. I was getting yeah. top scores, so they couldn't kick me out. <laughs> he really gets it. And it's like, I do get it. Here's what you wanted me to answer on the test, but what about this other context? And, um, and I think what really pushed it home was I met somebody named Tracy Vogel. She has a, a trauma-informed care practice in Pittsburgh, and she was my attending. Tracy's amazing, actually. She's we amazing. Had a, we, we were on the podcast together with her. She's amazing, yeah. So that's right. I, yes, I remember that. So she's, um, she's special because she's an anesthesiologist that was trained at Stanford. Like, this is one of the top institutions to go for grad training. And I met her when I was a med student. I said, hey, Dr. Vogel, can I, be, can I uh, do a, a rotation with you? 
and learn a little bit about epidurals and when I actually wanted to start placing epidurals like that was going to be one of the weird thing about me and uh, my residency program didn't let me train to do it I would have had to take an extra year and blah 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 so when I met Tracy in med school she and I stayed in touch and what she's doing now is she took her observations from being an anesthesiologist specializing in OBGYN, uh, you know, on labor and delivery units. And she's the one behind the curtain who's making people feel safe and heard during a C-section or during whatever. And if you consider that when people go into the hospital, just having a healthy mom, healthy baby isn't good enough. If you can just recognize that by asking people their birth stories from past births, you'll realize that there's trauma happening on the energetic, on the subtle energetic level, that if we don't see you as the whole person, I can't actually do the thing that I took an oath to do. Yeah. So it requires a 15,000 foot view every couple months, perhaps, every day maybe, to say, is what I'm doing working? And if it's not working, we have to be able to shift, even if it's just a slight nudge to the left or right, or like me, a 90 degree pivot or 180 degree pivot and getting the hell out. know how we inspire that but I also yeah. don't blame people for not doing it because it's so confronting. Yeah. It's so confronting that's such a good word well so if you want to hear more about Tracy um, go check out the midwifery wisdom podcast episode one and um, actually the podcast right before this I just interviewed uh, Krista Dancy who owns Dancy Perinatal and she is a trauma-informed therapist who's now working to advocate to get trauma-informed therapists on the ward in all OB units right to help the providers have somewhere to go. Instead of HR, they need a trauma therapist, right? Because so many studies are showing that if we deal with the trauma in the first 24 hours, the plasticity of the brain doesn't actually absorb it as trauma. It can be dealt with. It can, like, you can avoid PTSD if you get deal with it in the beginning. Yeah. But anyway, um, trauma is such an important part of this conversation because the system itself is designed to traumatize. I mean, maybe it wasn't designed to traumatize, but that's definitely one of its side effects. And this is obviously for patients, we hear a lot about obstetric violence and coercion and lack of informed consent and all these issues. But I want to talk to you briefly about how the actual process of becoming a doctor is traumatic. And I've heard this from several other providers. Can you tell me more about that? <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, we're all, the way I see it is that I don't need the government's religious leaders or my parents to tell me what to do. And um, because, because I know myself, I know what my purpose is, and I know what's best for me, for my family. And oftentimes I feel like I know what's best for my patients, but of course I don't know that until I really get to know them. But since I know who I am, and since I know that I'm, I'm listening and paying attention, I feel like I can counsel in a way that will provide them all the information that they can use to make an informed consent. When you're in medical training, listening to your internal truth, your, yourself, like what do I need to do right now? I need to go pee. You're not allowed to go pee right now because you're on call. So there's a process whereby you're kind of programmed robotically to continue working despite listening to whatever your inner voice is telling you. And I use the example of having to pee deliberately because that seems like a pretty natural signal from your bladder that I have to go. But what, what then, what about not listening to the signal to have to pee? Let's compare that to not listening, being trained to not listen to the signal that perhaps this thing I'm doing is hurting somebody, yeah. disrupting their labor process, um, intervening when it's not necessary. You're trained over four hard years of residency. Don't listen to that. Don't, don't fall, you know, 
through cognitive dissonance, we need you to get through that because this is how we do things here. That process of not listening to yourself and, and not feeling seen and heard, having your program director tell you, your wife has to come second from now on. That is not a very good look. That's not a really nice way to be alive. And so when you talk to OBGYNs, they don't seem to be very connected to their own purpose. They're really just executing orders and doing it well, don't get me wrong. Doing a C-section is a really scary, uh, unfortunately it's very easy for us now because we do too many of them, but that used to be one of the highest risk surgeries. In fact, women died for years, us trying to figure out where to put clamps and all this other stuff. So if you can, if you look at a person as a person on an operating room table, it's very hard to put a scalpel through their belly. But if I can disconnect from what my intuition and what my, what my sort of, my connection to God, spirit, source, the cosmos, and I can see there's another person, heart math, we are connected heart to heart, it becomes very hard for me to take a scalpel and cut into Augustine. Yeah. It's a piece of skin that's about this big, draped over. You don't see anybody, you don't hear anybody talking. It's just tissue. So yeah. the process of becoming a surgeon alone and becoming a doctor who's very tuned in to the tools of pharma pharmaceuticals and surgery, you can't see them as a person. You have to actually focus your energy on just the task at hand, which becomes mm -hmm. very robotic. Yeah. And so for me, doing a surgery without realizing like I'm operating on Mrs. So-and-so or whatever, that, that was, it was not, it was not in coherence or resonance with my heart because I'm still caring for the person here and now I'm cutting into the person that I care for. So it's really tricky the the process of becoming a surgeon and OBGYNs are surgeons. Don't, don't yeah. let them be otherwise. They are surgeons. That's why they like doing surgery and everything looks like a nail when you've got a hammer. They've been trained, and again, they've been incentivized to not see the whole person, but to see the task at hand. Don't let that other fluffy, duffy stuff get in the way. And I've been the person since I was little who, yes, I can get the high test scores, but I also can't disconnect from my role as a human taking care of a human. And that's very, very tricky with surgery. So I think that that is traumatizing, you know? And it is traumatizing, especially for someone like you who doesn't yeah. fit into that, right? Like, it's actually kind of amazing that you made it through. And I just want to, like, really name that. Because, yeah. like, I've been focusing a lot on, like, why are we so low on, on doctors? Why aren't there, like, more seats in med schools? Why aren't we moving this forward? And so then I started looking at the med school admission processes and how that all happens. And you know, the clinician, the scientist is focused, not the healer, not the shaman, not the carer. That's right. not who is picked to get into this process. So right. it's, it's like, first of all, remarkable that you made it through. Congratulations. I, I barely <laughs> uh, made it through, by the way. I was on remediation twice. And I was uh, called to the principal's office three times and threatened with being discharged from the program in med school. So it was not an easy path. <laughs> Well, um, I can I can understand why a lot of ways as a non-traditional thinker and as you know this out of the box kind of person, I, I can see how that really confronted them right from the beginning. Forget about now that you're yeah. actually a provider doing what you want to do. I'm sure there are plenty of people who do not do not cheer for you. Uh, unfortunately, we all do here in the midwifery world. Um, but I I want to just sort of go back to that point, like the the like the United States and many of the countries that are emulating the process of westernized obstetrics pioneered in the United States are not choosing folks who make decisions from their heart. 
They're choosing clinicians. They're choosing scientists. Um, and so if there's any kind of compassion in the person, it either gets beat out of them or they leave the process traumatized, right? Right. Right. Um, because the system, I mean, now finally residents can only, only be awake for 80 hours or something straight. You know, it's like these yeah. crazy amounts of time. Finally, we have some checks and balances around that. But even so, there's a, a bit of an automatron requirement to get through this stay, crazy. Stay yeah. in the line. Yeah. Stay in the lines. Exactly. And so, um, you know, given all of this, you know, there's this great um, university in New York. What's it called? Um, I think it's. Sunny, I think it's sunny. There's a, there's a pioneering med school that's taking people for college with two years of med school. So it's a six year all smushed together, all together. And they're not centering scientists. They're centering folks from the humanities, specifically trying to churn out docs who have this special quality that you're talking about. So we need more of that. We need more of like, um, in New Jersey, there's a med school that's doing um, this case-based education. I don't know if you, I can't remember the name right now, but they're doing this where your whole course is just like, here's a case, go figure out what happened, you know? So it's a different channels of brain thought of not memorization, not route memorization and, and protocols, but more like creative thinking and critical yeah. thinking and outside the box. So more education like this, more um, attracting folks in the humanities without perfect MCAT scores, but people who actually have that heart um, yeah. What else? What are some of the other solutions that our society could implement to bring more practitioners like you through the program? Yeah, I mean, so in our current present situation in the United States, we are so divisive where there's a binary for literally everything. You're either blue or red. You're a man or a woman. You're uh, either God-fearing or God-willing. I mean, like, it's literally every single thing, mask or no mask, vax or no vax, and everything is anti, anti, anti. I think that one really important thing that we need to be reminded of is nuance. Like there is nuance in every clinical decision that you make. It can't, every, everything can't be protocolized. And I'll add to that, and this also actually addresses your, your previous question, that if we're gonna continue, if we want to see an improvement in the care of people, we need to see the whole person. And that's going to be painful because we have to actually move beyond the Rene Descartes, I think therefore I am, you're a meat suit with a bunch of organs in it. We need to move beyond that. And we need to consider what else is going on. What is that spark of life that gives a person the twinkle in their eye? It can't just be you, you, you're alive for 80 years, you raise your kids, and then you die. Because that's actually how we see things in medicine, is that if I can polish up your kidneys, then everything else will work well. And we know that doesn't work. So what I think one, one point that I think needs to actually be implemented in medical school we need to have chaplains educating us. We actually need to re-embrace spirituality. And I'm not talking about, you know, we read Bible verses. I'm saying we need to be able to see ourselves for more than the sum of our parts. And we need to mm -hmm. realize a person's experience, even if joy, sorrow, um, pain, suffering, trauma, these are immeasurable things, but they're just as important, if not as important or more important than blood loss, infection rates, whatever, you know, whatever else we in our medical training, we only learned the importance of the measurable. But if Augustine, this is a classic question, if I asked you, how much do you love your mom or your best friend or whatever? How much do you love them? Like, 
Put it on a scale, uh, smiley face to, to frowny face. Can you really quantify how much you love your partner or love your kids or whatever else? Of course not. Does that mean it's not important? Of course not. So when we go into a birth, we have to understand that we are traumatizing people in the birthing process or in just their general treatment with their primary care doc by, by, rec by not recognizing that there's more to this person sitting in front of me than their PAP results, than their blood work, than their UA. There is a whole person with an entire story that precedes them and an entire story that's going to succeed them. And yeah. um, we can start to appreciate that we are not just, we can't see things just through the reductive materialistic lens. Everything else will fall into place. I think that that's, yeah. we, need to, we need to re embrace spirituality as opposed to being turned off by it. I really do. I really yeah. believe. I love that. I love that. And yeah, and just to follow up, like, Obstetrics needs midwifery, and this is an unpopular opinion, but yeah. obstetrics needs midwifery because midwives have figured out this because we've never lost it. You know, since the beginning of time, midwifery sat with another. I mean, no matter what language you speak it in, midwifery with woman, sage femme, wise woman, you know, partera, um, palikiki. I mean, I could, you know, all the languages that have words for midwife, it embodies this with power with instead of power over yeah. Yeah. and obstetrics needs midwifery because we already understand this and midwifery needs obstetrics because right. there's an extreme amount of study and depth of knowledge on subjects that we almost never even see but when we need it we really need it so it's this this actually is perfect and beautiful marriage if we could somehow figure out how to put the egos to bed and deal with the the territorial drama um you've figured out how to do that so my challenge to you is how are you going to help other ob's figure this out <laughs> uh, you know, we need I, you to be a leader maybe we don't need the ob's to figure it out maybe okay if, well, instead of doing six weeks of obstetrics uh, of OBGYN. What if you did six weeks and we had an entire course of midwives teaching the medical students? And then uh, they get a couple weeks with an OBGYN and they get to see a C-section, they get to see ultrasound, they get to see what an OBGYN does. But if you're gonna care for the person, you want, you need to pursue midwifery with a little splash of OBGYN. And then if you really like the C-sections and the GYN surgery and all that cool shit, it's cool, don't get me wrong. It's cool. Yeah. But it's not the lens through which we need to spurt. So you start yeah. your OBGYN training with a midwife. You then yeah. maybe do an internship with some specific GYN surgery. And then if you yeah. really like go and do four years of OBGYN training, or you go and be a family medicine doctor, and you also go through midwifery training, and yeah. then you're a birth midwife doc. Yeah, you know? I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, it okay. seems to me like we could describe this as being a cultural exchange. Because the, the midwifery and obstetrics have completely different cultures. They have right. completely different languages. They have completely different origins of being, like, they're different. But if we could figure out how to have this cultural exchange, this bridge building, um, I think we could really create integrative care models. So, um, yeah, I love yeah. this conversation. Hey to everyone who's following us. I just want to wave and say thank you for sticking with us for this conversation. If you're catching the recording, um, drop and sell us where you're calling in from, where you're watching. Um, also, do you have any questions for Nathan before we sign off? Type some questions that you might have. Well, um, 
Nathan, I, I want to sort of pan back out of our, of our deep political kind of evaluation and, um, and ask you uh, to sort of name what you love about what you're doing right now, what you've learned from midwifery, and what you think um, midwives have to learn from you. So it's kind of three questions. What do I love about what I'm doing right now? Um, I've met so many amazing um, midwives, doulas, childbirth educators, and, and pregnant people. I've met so many amazing people on, on, on sort of their terms, which meaning we can have as much conversation as we want to have. I get to hear birth stories every single day. And, you know, if, if, another thing I think bringing, bringing back ritual and ceremony and birth stories is a really important facet of, of really recalibrating our society around the sacred process of birth. And so getting to hear those stories, it's almost like I don't even know what's happening in the hospital system anymore because I'm so immersed in the love surrounding the midwifery, the, the midwife um, uh, client interaction. And I get to have like a little glimpse into that with all of my collaborators. And all the um, I also have a lot of free time to like take care of myself. Somebody mentioned I'm not working 100 hour a week. I'm like with my little girls. I've got a, just over a two year old and a six month old and I get to be with them in my house all the time. Um, and so that's really, that's really treasured. What were the other two questions? What have you learned from midwifery since you've been working so closely? And then what do midwives have to learn from obstetrics or from you specifically? I've learned that midwives are, are real badasses. Like they are on call all the time. They're doing some very, very hard work. I would like to see more collaboration between midwives in general. But I guess that's part of the, the role of the conference is to get people like really to know one another so that we can be covering for one another and supporting one another, both emotionally and intellectually. Um, I've learned from midwives that they are willing to go above and beyond for the benefit of their clients, which I never saw within my OBGYN community. And I'm also learning from them. It's a constant reiteration of the art of doing nothing. You know, in the words of my, my mentor, Stu Fishbein, he's like, he brought me to a home birth, my very first home birth. And he was like, I was like trying to get ready and all this other stuff. And he was like, I'm going to teach you the art of just doing nothing. In other words, sitting on your hands and just letting this process unfold so that if we absolutely need to intervene, we're only doing it in, in, on, on a rare occasion. And midwives live that every day. Most midwives really live that. And I've really appreciated that sort of continued education, just being with midwives and seeing how they care for one another um, and, and, uh, and their clients has been really helpful. I, I had a breach workshop here with, uh, with Rick Safries and David Hayes, and I had all the midwives over to my house uh, the night between the two days of training. And they can party. Like, they really <laughs> they do. You know, they're not complaining about what they do. They're like, oh, and I had this awesome thing happen and this awesome thing. And I'm like, God, to be excited about what you do again is yeah. so, I want to be a midwife too. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I thought oh, about I that. Actually, that. Uh, the CPM training, it's just, you know, why pretend when I can support you guys who really do it? You are authentically you. And I love that about, about the midwifery community. Um, I love so that too. I love that too. Well, my last and final question for you, and if anyone has any definitely ask them. We will, um, we will try to get to them. I'm just reviewing any questions. Um, yeah, ob need some kind of ongoing self-care program. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we should have the sacred model of birth care be a part of everything. 
Thanks everyone for your loves and your hearts and your thank yous. We do love having this conversation for sure. Well, so Nathan, my last question is um, apropos the fact that we get to uh, host you in uh, Galveston, Texas at the Midwifery Wisdom Experience coming up this November as one of our uh, cherished speakers. Um, obviously, you're going to speak on a specific topic, but there's so much that folks can learn from you. And so my final question is, from you personally or from obstetrics in general, uh, what are midwives, what are midwives want or need to learn from you or from the profession? I think that what I specialize in is helping people see the nuance in how these different diagnoses are made. So I'll be speaking on hypertensive disorders. Is every person with hypertension destined to have a, you know, a, a horrible abruption and need a 34 week induction? No, of course not. But the way that it's presented often is here's the checklist. If they hit a number of boxes, then it's doomsday. And I, I think that really what I want people to appreciate is that if the body is given the right resources before, during, and after pregnancy, that salutogenesis takes over real fast. The body wants to heal. The body wants to grow a healthy baby. And the body wants to recover postpartum. We just need to provide the, the we need to hold space for that process. And we need to provide the resources for that to happen. And it's not all doom and gloom. It's really a matter of just supporting a person, being between the lines, supporting a person, getting them through this hard thing. And, um, and ideally keeping them out of the clinical system unless absolutely necessary. So that's where I see my skill set being most valuable to midwives is, hey, I really think that it's good that you notice this. But again, I'm not so sure that this is all that something all that, you know, important to worry about. Let's just follow this along. And that should provide some relief to the midwife caring for her clients and to the client as well that, hey, I don't have to write language to cover my butt. I work through a private association. I do whatever I want. I don't work in insurance companies. I don't have a culture of practice that's going to be, you know, I have to worry about being fired or worry about my 401k. I'm here to serve you. I'm going to speak from the heart. And sometimes that is going to result in me saying, you know, let's go get a, a high-risk consultation. This one, this yeah. is pretty, pretty tricky. But those are much more rare than the system would, would make you believe. So, yeah. so that's what I yeah. offer. Come and find me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, so if someone did want to come follow you, um, they can follow you on Instagram. You're at Holistic OBGYN, right? No, Nathan Riley OBGYN. Oh, your name on Instagram, Nathan Riley. The podcast is Holistic OBGYN. Yep, the Holistic. I got it wrong. Okay, yep. I've got it good. And then a website for us. Yeah, belovedholistics.com, where you can find, you know, if you have a client that needs to meet with me, just schedule a free discovery call. We'll see if there's good chemistry, and then, then they can work with me. Um, I also have the collaborator program up there. I've got a weekly newsletter. Um, the collaborator program, I'm still accepting people because I'm finding ways, like, I want to spend more time with the collaborator program because it's so rewarding for all the reasons I said. Um, you can find all the information on the website there. It's a very reasonable fee. It's a subscription model. And once you, once you lock in a rate, as long as your account is current, even if the prices go up in the future, which they will, you stay with that rate and, um, awesome. and uh, for, for life. And it gets, allows me to serve way, way more people than if I had my own home, home birth practice. So awesome. awesome. Yep. My friend, I can't wait to see you in person and give you a squeeze and uh, celebrate all that we're, we're able to do together. Thank you so much. I, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, you guys are the heroes out there. I'm, I'm just happy to be able to help you out. So. <laughs> okay talk to you soon goodbye my friend have a lovely day bye everybody bye augustine thank you thank you